Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent Australian Open podcast. This is Matt Zemek along with my co-host Saqib Ali. Saqib's also the producer of the podcast. So it is that time for the Australian Open and this podcast is sponsored by our friends at Australia's Stats Insider. So this is the first time that uh, we get to collaborate with Stats Insider for an Australian Open. Uh, Stats Insider joined us uh, midway through the 2019 tennis season, so we never got to team up with Stats Insider for the Australian Open, but now we get to do that. Um, before we invite our guest uh, to uh, promote Stats Insider, let's have a word from our sponsor. Tennis with an Accent podcast listeners will be used to checking Stats Insider for pre-match predictions, world rankings by surface type, major tournament simulators, and other cool cutting-edge tennis content. But perhaps the coolest tool of them all is the in-play live match probabilities. Using Stats Insider's custom serve-by-serve machine learning predictive algorithms, watch as Stats Insider comes alive with full match stats and dynamic probabilities of your favorite player winning their match as it's being played. Live, in-play match statistics and dynamic probabilities now on statsinsider.com.au throughout the Australian Open and for all major ATP and WTA tournaments. Head to www.statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. So it's my great pleasure to welcome part of the team at Stats Insider, Nick Splitter, to talk more about what Stats Insider has ready for the 2020 Australian Open. Nick, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So, um, and, for, and first off, before we get into Stats Insider's content, um, you know, you are down there in Australia, obviously the environmental catastrophe and, you know, it, this, this is tennis. This is an escape from uh, the troubles of the world. But sometimes the troubles of the world, uh, you know, are coexist. And I don't think we should entirely ignore them. So for our listening audience, Nick, just tell us what the situation is, you know, since you are there on the ground. Um, just give us a general update on on what's happening so that and, and you know, if, if there are people who are coming to Melbourne for the first time as tennis tourists. And I know we did our uh, Australian Open tour guide with uh, Julie Zhao um, last week. Uh, is there anything that people need to know about the conditions and some extra precautionary uh, moves that they can make to have a safer uh, experience at the Australian Open? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll start off by saying Julie provided a really in-depth and great kind of preview of what, it, what you should expect when you come to Melbourne. Uh, we're also based in Melbourne. Uh, we're not too far from from the tennis precinct and the sporting precinct uh, in the CBD or, or just on the outskirts of the CBD. Uh, obviously, as most people kind of, I think, around the world probably know, we've had a really tough couple of months, uh, you know, with the fire season, the bushfire season here in Australia. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of property damage, uh, wildlife ha- has been killed, so, uh, loss of life human loss of life. It's been a, it's been a horrific couple of months. Uh, w- luckily over the last couple of days, we, we've seen a bit of rain here in the South in, in, in Melbourne, which where the Australian Open's being held. And, and so, uh, if you've been kind of keeping track, you would have seen some issues on, 
uh, during the week with with some of the qualifying tournaments and practices being cancelled and some some player issues with the air quality from the smoke from the bushfires. We've had a couple of days of rain now. Uh, a lot of that smoke in the air has cleared. Uh, by no means is, does that mean that the you know this situation is over, but uh, it's certainly a lot better than it was a couple of days ago. Uh, there's nothing much really that, that people can do. Obviously, just just be wary. If you are outside, um, take care. Try and get inside as much as possible. It, it may get smoky again. Uh, just just be really careful. Be vigilant. It, it does get really hot around this time of year as well. So carry lots of water. Carry your sunscreen. Uh, stay hydrated and, and try and keep as healthy as possible. Okay. We wanted to put that forth for our listeners because, you know, it is a serious situation not to be treated lightly and it's better to offer at least a little bit of information and context rather than just look past it and go straight to the tennis. So thank you for that, Nick. All right. So, so tell us about the new things that Stats Insider is doing in 2020, what's going on and, and, uh, you know, how you see your tennis product evolving for the new season and what fans should really find valuable uh, from, from Stats Insider's tennis coverage. Sure. I mean, like, like you said at the top, uh, you know, you, your listeners will probably be used to checking statsinsider.com.au before a tournament or before a match or before a day's play, whatever they prefer to kind of see the, the match predictions to utilize the, the tournament simulators uh, to see what sort of journey they, they can expect for their favorite players, uh, the futures projections, what sort of probability their favorite player has to win the tournament, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in 2020, we're really focusing on, on you know, sports fan engagement during, during live events, during play. And one of the things that we've been focusing on is, is our live in-play uh, probabilities for major tournaments. That includes all ATP and WA tournaments, as, as you said at the top of the show, uh, and the Grand Slams, obviously. Uh, so what we've done is, is we've taken kind of the bones of our, our match predictions. Uh, we've converted that into a serve-by-serve -serve machine learning product. Uh, and you can now watch, uh, as you watch a, a, a match live on TV or you're following live scores elsewhere, you can head to statsinsider.com.au and you can head to the match page for that particular match and follow the likelihood of each of those players winning their, winning their match uh, as the match happens live and in play. It's a... Uh, it's pretty cool. We've had some great feedback for it. You can follow all the, the important match stats uh, as it happens, all in real time or, or as close to as possible. Uh, and uh, we're really excited about this coming ten tennis season. Okay. So when I go to the Stats Insider uh, tennis page, uh, your, your tennis hub, uh, in, in terms of looking at the layout of a page, guide uh, a web surfer through you know the, the 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 layout of the site and where he or she can it, it can go to click on uh, the matches and 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 get the in match statistics. Um, so like when they look at the layout, either on a desktop or or on a on a smartphone, you know where will that be uh, so that people know exactly where to go uh, to get your live in match in play probabilities and also the match statistics. Sure. So if, if you navigate to statsinsider.com.au uh, and, and hit tennis up in the, the top navigation bar, uh, you'll land on the, the tennis hub, as you mentioned. Uh, at the top of this page, uh, you'll see all of the, the men's and women's fixtures that are upcoming. And if there's anything on live at the moment, they all take priority at the top of the page. Uh, you can click into any of those, those matches. If, if a, a match hasn't started yet, 
you'll land on the the standard pre-match prediction match page uh, where you can see kind of the the models predictions for the head-to-head and some of the other, I guess, markets of, of you know, set lines and game lines and that sort of stuff. Uh, if there's a, a match live and you, you click on that, you'll end up landing on on a live match page where you'll be able to see as the, the game happens, as the match happens, uh, updating, as I said, in real time, uh, head-to-head probabilities and, and some of those other some of those other metrics. Um, there's a, a live match graph that goes you know, ticks up and down as as the match is played. Uh, there's a, a match score on, on one of the tiles where you can follow the actual score and their their win probability. Uh, and then just below that, there's a, a match stats bar where if you click on that to expand, it will show in in real time at per serve. Uh, updated match stats as as the match happens, just to keep you updated and give you a really good context of what's actually happening out on court. As I said, the model, the prediction model works on a serve by serve basis. So it takes uh, pre-match, it takes serving percentages and serving rates from each player and, and runs through a, a predictive machine learning algorithm model. Uh, that is then, I guess, amplified throughout the match. And as the match goes on, it then weights all of that, all of that data uh, to the more recent points and the more recent play during this match as opposed to pre-match. Uh, so all of these things, all these different match stats and variables go into the live model. Uh, and, and like I said, this match page will give you a really good indication of what's actually happening on court without being able to watch it, uh, you know, stream stream the match live, uh, give you as good an indication as to what's happening on court as you would have watching it live. Uh, and alternatively, like I said to you off off air a couple of days ago, Matt, if you want to get some more some more context, some more t- statistical basis to what's happening while you're watching the game, you can certainly have have the match page open and the, the live widget open as you watch it on another screen, and uh, it really gives you a good indication of of kind of who's performing better from a st- statistical standpoint uh, as well while you're watching the game. Okay, so let's dive into the the live in match statistics. Uh, you know, not talking about the probabilities, but but the statistics. And a lot of tennis fans, people that Sakib and I talk to, the, you know, the thing that they emphasize to us, you know, we don't need to know. I mean, it's it's fine to have first serve percentage, second serve percentage, but a lot, you know, the serious tennis fans tell us, you know, let, let's let's tell the story of percentage of first and second serve points one and uh and you know and that from that you know how to calculate the other players return points one so stats insider has those stats for live match statistics and that seems to be at least to me uh the the most valuable component uh of your suite of uh information available in terms of uh, live in match statistics so tell us more about the, the, the full extent of what you offer, you know, what's on your platter at Stats Insider for uh, when you present live in-match statistics? Sure. I mean, like, like a lot of different outlets, you know, we, we have the basic, the basic match stats, you know, aces, double faults, break points, et cetera, uh, serve and receive percentage. But like you said, uh, you know, first serve and, and service, service rates and return rates are really important to our predictive models in, in the way that our in-play model has been built. So we thought it was really important to kind of utilize that in our, in our match stat tile as well so that the, the users could see what that first serve win point rate looked like uh, and second serve win rate and, and really get an understanding of, you know, how, how service and service points really affect 
the outcome of, of matches as they're played. It's, it's really important. And one thing that, you know, we always uh, encounter, or by we, I mean Sakib and myself, when we follow major tournaments on Twitter, on tennis Twitter, and we, we find that various people across the globe uh, have trouble with the, the major tournaments app or they have trouble with other uh, websites in terms of trying to get accurate, live, up-to-date information. So I remember you, you know, when we talked about our collaboration, Tennis with an Accent and Stats Insider, for the 2020 Australian Open, you told me something about the regularity with which Stats Insider gets updated information that, so that you can trust it really is uh, uh, you know, being continuously updated as we speak and that there's not going to be very much lag time. And, you know, you can trust it's an up-to-date statistic. So tell us more about the rate, the f- rate of frequency with which statistics are updated in a match and how they're going to show up uh, when people look to uh, the live in-match statistics page for a match at Stats Insight. Yeah, that's right. It's it's really tough. The the speed of of a tennis match and and the speed of service points and service games really varies, but it, it can be quite difficult to keep up to date with with real time events on court when you're you're talking about streaming online and and you know, a whole lot of variables and factors go into that sort of product. What what we can say is that uh, at the very at the very least our probabilities update at the end of each game. Uh, oftentimes they will update throughout the game with you know, as as individual points happen there might be some small variation in probabilities but the probability that the big jumps in probability and likelihood really happen at, at the end of each game once those once those points and, and those games have been confirmed but the, the match stats themselves so the service points and aces and, and all that sort of stuff is really updated in, in real time or as close to uh, everything updates kind of within 30 seconds uh, and every 30 seconds so it's it's really about as as close to real time as you could get without it being live on screen. Yeah. So so uh, one thing I saw from from Stats Insider's live in match statistics is that uh, you have you know you have your win probability posted, and, and then below it there's the statistical tabulation, and so the points won and lost are are constantly being updated, and that's why you might see the um, probability, the win probability for the match changes because the points are either accumulating or decreasing on, on the, the two sides of, of the ledger for that match. So it really kind of, it, it takes away the mystery from it. You know, it, it takes away the confusion that, okay, you can see the match probability increasing at, as a player's total of points one is also increasing. So you get that uh, linkage that connection between the probability and the model and also what's actually happening in the match. So I found that to be a very uh, user-friendly part of, of, of what's going on with Stats Insider. So uh, tell us more about, um, well, anything else about Stats Insider's tennis coverage? I know you have uh, a number of articles out. Um, Anything else in particular that uh, you want to share about uh, what Stats Insider is doing at the Australian Open? Sure. I mean, you you guys probably remember James Rosewarn, who's our our kind of chief tennis writer here at Stats Insider. Uh, Once again, as he does for for every major tournament, he's kind of written about the five outsiders or the unknown, not so much unknowns, but but certainly outsiders and and, uh, outside the top three or five favorites to win a tournament. 
who could kind of upset the apple cart, I guess, at, at Melbourne Park this year. Uh, there's a couple of really good outsiders, and he's gone quite in, in depth into some of the stats that matter for each of those players, men and women. Uh, once again, you know, we, we have our tournament futures, so that the probability of each player winning the, the, the Australian Open completely, uh, as well as the, the the tournament simulator, which we've run uh, for every every major tournament since last year's Australian Open, uh, which essentially gives users an insight into into our predictive model. And, and what that does is is that we've essentially uploaded our 10,000 tournament simulations uh, into our platform, and you can now choose a player and hit submit, and it will run through that player's Australian Open journey uh, one of those 10,000 times. So you could hit that 10,000 times and get a different outcome every time. It's based on off our uh, our futures probabilities uh, and, and tournament probabilities, but it's a, it's a really cool tool to kind of analyze you know, a player's draw and the impact that that draw might have had on on their potential uh, Australian Open winning probability, uh, but also to see how how things can change. There might be an upset uh, in one of those matches when you when you hit the simulator uh, and give your player who might be ranked you know 50 in the world a, a much better chance of winning the tournament. And uh, just running it this morning, we we've gone live this morning. It's uh, was it Friday afternoon here in Melbourne, so we're about 60 hours away from from the uh, first serve of, of the Australian Open on Monday morning, Australian time. Uh, we launched the simulator this morning, and uh, I've already had one situation where Hubert Hercutz won the uh, Australian Open, which I'm sure most people wouldn't be expecting or, or predicting, but uh, it's it's just one of the 10,000 outcomes that our, our algorithm has spat out. Well, uh, a possible third-round match between Hubert Hercutz and Roger Federer uh, could be in the cards. So if that match happens, we know that Stats Insider is going to be all over it with uh, live in-match probabilities <laughs> and dynamic in-match statistics updated every 30 seconds. So it's going to be a real treat. So uh, Nick Splitter, thanks for all your work at Stats Insider and working with us at Tens with an Accent. And uh, you know, on our Twitter feeds, uh, Stats Insider is your Twitter feed and Accent underscore Tennis is ours. We're going to have some really cool announcements uh, about the more of the fruits of our partnership. So you want to look for that on Twitter uh, while you uh, listen to, the, to this podcast. So Nick Splitter, thank you for joining us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Sakib. Thank you for your support of, of Stats Insider. Thank you for your support of, of Australia during this uh, bushfire period. Uh, hopeful of, of doing something together in terms of a, a charity donation between Tennis with an Accent and Stats Insider. And uh, there'll be more on that over the coming days, as you said, on, on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with Saqib Ali. And uh, we're arriving at the first major tournament of the year, the 2020 Australian Open. And uh, to help us break down the tournament, one of our staff writers and contributors at Tennis with an Accent, Mert Ertunga. You can find him on Twitter at Mertovs, T-Desk, M-E-R-T-O-V-S-T-Desk. Uh, and we're, we're thrilled to have Mert here. And uh, Mert, first off, Happy New Year. I uh, hope that your off-season's been great. My off season was great, very restful, a little bit fattening, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> that's what uh, that's what the holidays are for. But uh, yes, it was a very restful uh, period. But uh, I was I'm ready to get back into um, into the swing of things in terms of tennis. So happy New Year to ever to all the listeners out there. All right, and so uh, you know, Sakib's gonna 
talk to you about the ATP half of the uh, Australian Open and the draws that have just been released. I'm going to talk to you about the WTA. And so one of the foremost points of intrigue is, is that Bianca Andreescu, the most recent WTA major champion at the U.S. Open, will not be in Melbourne competing for the title. And there are a number of questions about uh, the, the health of players or the participation of players in this tournament. So how does Andrescu's absence, when you look at the draw, uh, reshape or in any way affect uh, you know, your estimation of you know, who, who the favorites are and, and what the main uh, pressure points are going to be in Melbourne? Um, Matt, I don't want to use the, the the term devastating, but I think Bianca Andreescu's absence from this tournament is is quite critical or quite significant for 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 WTA and for the for women's tennis uh, slam play in general. Because we had at the U.S. Open a memorable final, and we had a player who had a memorable run throughout the year, not just at the U.S. Open, which just had a banner. 2019 season and what wouldn't I have given to see another Serena Andreescu final at the Australian Open to follow it up which would then build it up to a, to a great rivalry maybe for the next year or two to come but uh, but we've been deprived of that because of uh, Bianca's uh, injury and also you know, I will also say this had she not had an injury and had she just kept going at 100%, you know, at 100% physically through the rest of the 2019 and entered this tournament uh, still in form or at least not having suffered an injury. And after having a 2019 season that she had, we probably would be sitting here talking right now saying, okay, we have Serena and Andrescu as the top two favorites. Who do you have after them? You know, we might have even said that. And we cannot say that either. So her absence is, um, is, is, is really unfortunate on many, many levels, not just in terms of a fan who simply loves the quality of tennis uh, that, that, he, that, that he watches on the court. But I'm also sad as a fan who perhaps was looking forward to, to, to a pretty good rivalry between the two, maybe for a year or two or however long it lasts. Because uh, it was a good contrast in game styles too, uh, between her and Serena. But also, you know, to see if she was going to going to have any maybe sophomore jinx, as we say it in the United States. So there are many, many questions left un- unanswered, and uh, it's one of these things where you, you know, you, you go you go into a spectacle, uh, or you buy a ticket for a future spectacle, and you you anticipate a great showing, and then and then half of the spectacle is. Uh, or a, a significant portion of the spectacle is canceled. That's the way that that's my feeling for Andrescu's absence. So with with Andrescu not being part of this Mert, uh, and I'm, I'm I assume you do, you have had a chance to look at the draw. Uh, if I was to tell you, Mert, which which option would you take before the tournament? The winner of the Serena Osaka quarterfinal wins the championship, or the rest of the field? Which which are you taking? I will take the winner of Osaka and Serena, uh, simply because at this point I think there are two or three there are two or three or four favorites to win the tournament. I think Serena stands alone as the top favorite, in my opinion. 
uh, now and uh, she uh, she does she will run into Osaka if if all goes according to to the seeds or at least to plans uh, she should run into Osaka in the quarterfinals and I do believe that the winner of that match is poised to win the tournament if they end up playing in the quarterfinals yes that would be my top choice okay if Serena is the top uh, favorite is she the top favorite by a lot or a little or somewhere in between. Uh, uh, somewhere in between, I'd say I'd, I'd, I'd say a significant favorite. Uh, uh, if I had to pick someone, not even if I had to pick someone, if if we were playing with friends, uh, a little, a little uh, okay, who is your, who are your top four fix, picks uh, type of game? Uh, she would, I would, I would jot down Serena's name without uh, much thought. That she would uh, starting at you know at number two, at number three, I would have. Uh, I would contemplate a little bit more, but at number one, I would jot in uh, Serena's name immediately. All right. So let's stay with that loaded second quarter of the draw, which has Osaka and Serena as the two uh, top eight seeds. When you look at that second quarter, Mert, uh, with, you know, you have Yastremska, you have Kennan, uh, and you have, you know, Coco Goff could play Naomi Osaka in the third round for a second consecutive major. Of course, they, met in the third round of the U.S. Open. Uh, so when you look at the floaters in the Serena Osaka quarter, which ones do you think have the best chance to create some chaos in that, in that second quarter of the draw? Well, I would go with the younger players, Matt. I would go with Yastremska, having a chance to, uh, to, to, to create chaos, as you would say. I would look to Sofia Kennan, who could, uh, who could, do, who could uh, on a given day, the, if her timing is is on, she could do very well. And then there are some other names. There's Strikova. There's Sloane Stevens. But uh, again, you know, you you asked me if uh, if I could see any players creating chaos. Um, I, do, I I believe Ken, Ken and Yastremska are the two that can do that. And that and, and that's because on a on a certain day, on a given day, they could play out of their minds and possibly beat a top player. Um, I'm not sure that uh, that uh, Sloane Stevens or Conta or uh, or Wang can beat Serena or Osaka if Serena and Osaka are you know are are, uh, are I don't want to say at the top of their level but are playing a good match you know it's going to be hard for them to be for them to beat those players but but the Kenin and uh, and Yastremska have that firepower and have that uh, the ability to pull. Uh, some a stretch of 20 25 minutes of incredible tennis where they can jump up on a player and then from there on you know it's a matter of confidence losing confidence or keeping the momentum up so those two are the most likely to create chaos again using your uh, terminology okay let's broaden our focus beyond that second quarter mert and you know one of the main divisions we regularly explore when we talk about major tennis tournaments the four majors is the division between first week and second week. You know, first week you get through it, second week you pursue a championship. First week you play your way into form, second week you you show what you're made of in big time, big stage matches against other elite players. So what is your overall view in terms of how you expect the first week to feed into the second week? Uh, you, you can take it any way you want, Mert, but just what do you think the larger architecture of this tournament is going to be compared to when you compare the first week to the second week? Uh, are we talking about the whole women's draw or just the top or the, or the bottom or all of it? 
whole whole the whole women's draw. Yeah, I think Matt, you posed you posed a very um, uh, interesting, intriguing question, and the way you posed it is even better because. Uh, yes, I think some of these younger players, just like Kenan and Yastrzemska that I mentioned, can create chaos in the first week or early in the tournament. But I think when it when it's all said and done, once we get to the quarterfinals and and on, uh, if they make it that far, I I'm gonna I'm gonna speculate that the seasoned players will impose on them. In other words, when we when we reach the quarterfinals and semifinal stage. I'm looking at names like Pliskova, Halep, uh, perhaps uh, Kiki Bertens, uh, you know, a, a player like Bencic or uh, Sabalenka, perhaps, um, you know, or, or even Elise Mertens, perhaps who can impose themselves and, and have a chance to go further in the, in, in the second week in the late rounds. And, and I, you know, for example, Osaka, I'm counting as a seasoned player also. You know, although she although she's a younger player, someone like Madison Keys, um, you know, uh, who de- who recently defeated Petra Kvitova, who is who should also be in this group. So I'm looking at these players like uh, Kvitova, Keys, and just like the ones I mentioned before, to 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 be there if they make it that far, if they get to that second week, just like you say, if they can get if they can survive the chaos of the first week and make it to the fourth round. Uh, or quarterfinals, those are the names that I'm expecting to see in the quarterfinals. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I feel the winner of Serena Osaka, if both of them make that far, is going to, is going to play a significant role because, um, from the, uh, because they will be the winner of that match going into the semifinals will have already gone through a major test and will be, will be even further ready. All right. Um, you know, we've we've had a number of coaching transitions or if not, well, in addition to coaching transitions, we've also just had coaching uncertainty with a lot of WTA players. And it's not so much it's not just a 2019 to 2020 transition, but we saw a lot of these transitions in the previous offseason, 2018 to 2019. And we saw the constant state of flux on the WTA tour in 2019, Mert. So, you know, as you as we get to the first major of 2020, and this is a very broad question, so you can you can get at it however you want to. Mm-hmm. With all the coaching transitions on tour, and with all of the volatility that we saw on tour last year. You know, do you think that and looking at this on a broader level, do you think we're going to see a 2020 season in which there is more of a, uh, a set of tiers of quality on tour? Or is it going to be the jumble again that we had a lot mm-hmm. of in 2019? What do you think is going to be the larger structure of the of the WTA tour season in 2020? What's your early feel on that? Well, my, my early field, Matt, is that it's going to settle down just a little bit and you're going to have a group of six or seven players who uh, who step forward and perhaps start doing well at the big tournaments uh, and uh, and not necessarily have, uh, you know, unknown players or, or low profile players all of a sudden, you know, finding themselves in the in the in the semifinals of a major or big tournaments. And yes, coaching changes 
There are a lot of them, but one of the other reasons why there's such uncertainty sometimes is, is that there are a lot of players recovering from long-term injuries, whether that is a, you know, a physical injury, uh, I don't know, a hamstring foot injury, or someone who's recovering from a viral infection. You know, we got, we got I believe, two or three players in this tournament now recovering from viral infections and then some recovering from long-term injuries, and they're not they're not low-profile players either. These are high-profile players recovering from long-term injuries. So coaching changes and long-term injury recovery times play into that uncertainty. But I think once we get once we get past February, March, the coaching changes settle in, the pairs start working together, the collaborations get to know each other, and hopefully, uh, you know, some of these injuries go away or at least players who suffered them late in 2019 are over them and have found their form again. So by the time the spring comes around, I think it's going to settle down a little bit. And once again, when that happens, I'm looking for, uh, you know, season, more seasoned players uh, to, to, to step forward. And this is one of the reasons why I wish Bianca Andreescu was around because she would not exactly be considered a seasoned player at this point, but she would, she would be considered someone who has, who has quickly accumulated a large, uh, you know, core practice of, uh, of, um, of experience. So you could even throw her into that mix. And then you would have seven or eight players that, uh, that continue to do well in the terms. And I, be- and I think in terms of marketability and, and, and attracting um, uh, the casual fan more into the sport, uh, having a few, you know, having two or three rivalries uh, represent themselves over and over again in the semifinals and finals of, of majors or big tournaments would be exciting. It is an exciting prospect that we did not have in the last year or two necessarily. All right. Give, on the heels of that, Mert, and focusing not so much on the 2020 season, but on the Australian Open again, the WTA half of it, uh, is there a player in your mind who stands out as one of those players who was either injured or inconsistent and had to basically spend time regrouping and, you know, being living in the shadows a little bit in the second half of 2019, whom you think is primed to make us, you know, a, a solid statement at the Australian open and reemerge as a factor on the WTA tour. Anyone come particularly close to that kind of uh, identity? No, I don't think so, Matt. I, I would love to give you a name, but out of the people who are recovering from injuries, it's just too soon for them, in my opinion, to put together a run of five or six good matches. You know, to take a, take a player like Marketa Vondrosova. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, she, she, she came from a long, she recovered from a long-term injury. I'm not sure that she can put together a good uh, you know, series of four or five matches to make it to the semis or finals again in this in this tournament. In fact, she's playing Kuznetsova first round, which is uh, no easy feat for her. You know, and, and then you have, uh, you know, a player like uh, Contevate, for example, and it Contevate, who's, who's seated here, who she's also recovering from, from a viral infection. She did play, you know, these are not players who are now playing for the first time. They played last week or, or, or a couple of weeks ago. But nonetheless, it's just not enough for them to recover and do well. Australian Open just comes too early in the season 
to be able to to be able to pull anything like that. I'd give more of a chance to a player like Svitolina, who has not had a big injury to deal with, who has been playing but has just not been in form. You know, she 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 she, she has not been in form. So therefore, um, you know, uh, she coming into this tournament. I don't know. Maybe her confidence is low, or maybe not much is expected because she has not done. Uh, necessarily really well in the last several months, but she has been playing. And I tr- I have more confidence in a player like that all of a sudden finding rhythm or building up after a couple of rounds some conf- confidence and going on a run and doing some big things than, than someone who's recovering from injury. But if but if you, but 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 one player that I do believe has a has a golden opportunity here to add something significant to her career. I mean, to, to really take the next step in her career, and she's not recovering from injury or viral infection, is Karolina Pliskova. You know, I, I, I feel like her draw is, is uh, I'm looking at her draw, and she, she, I, I see her getting to the quarterfinals without much problem. You know, the, there's Kerber, who just withdrew from a match with a hamstring injury, so that's a question mark. There's Vondrosova in her quarter. And then, you know, she's got uh, a group of Svitolina, Savastova, and Bertans coming there. And that's, uh, that, you know, that's her path to the semifinals. I think someone like that on hard courts, I mean, if, if, if uh, Pliskova wants to, you know, I, and I'm sure she does, but if, if this is Pliskova's golden opportunity to take that next, next step in her uh, tennis career. Well, let, let's, you know, since you've mentioned that, bottom uh, quarter of the draw let's let's pick that apart a little bit more um you know Svitolina came out of nowhere in the second half of the season you know because she she had a dreadful first half of 2019 and you know I, it, 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 <laughs> if you had asked anybody in tennis anyone who follows the sport on a, on a regular basis where is Alina Svitolina going to make her first major semifinal Wimbledon would have been a distant fourth yes on the list and yet that's precisely where she broke through. And then she carried that through to New York and made another semifinal. So if we get a Svitolina Pliskova quarterfinal, uh, how, how do you think the, the, the pressure of the moment for both players? I mean, you know, Pliskova is later on in her career, so she feels that kind of urgency. But you have uh, Svitolina, you know, rounding into form at majors, you know, not necessarily on a relentless every month, every week basis, but she's finally has a few good major results under her, her belt now. So how, how would you, I mean, obviously if they get to the quarterfinals, they will have both won four matches. So that would obviously help their, their outlook going in. But uh, what, what more do you think there is to say about a possible quarterfinal between two of the better players not to have won a major yet? Yes, that's a that's a very uh, fascinating quarterfinal prospect, and and you know what you're saying actually builds up on 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 what I said earlier too, and I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, Svitolina once again is not necessarily coming into this tournament in form. You know, she the WTA final in Brisbane just uh, uh, last week, and and she played Kremlin Cup and China Open at the end of uh, the, the at the end of. Uh, uh, or in the fall of 2019, didn't have exactly banner results, but uh, so she's not. You know, one can logically say that she's coming into this Australian Open not in form. She lost to Danielle Collins one and one, at uh, in Brisbane. But uh, but then 
just like just just like I said, a player like that, she who who still you know kept on playing, so physically she's going to be up to the task, and and she has beaten top players before. A player like that catches fire and could could do very well, and on top and and then to 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 uh, to support that uh, that pattern is what you just mentioned is the fact that she is someone who can turn it on in the majors. And, and, and do well, even though she hasn't won one yet. Yes, just like you say. And then you have Pliskova on the other side, who really needs to win a major title to to, to take the next step uh, in her career. So the two of them playing in the quarterfinals, to me, is as um, as fascinating a story line as Serena playing Osaka in the quarterfinals. So the, I would love to see both of those matches materialize in the quarterfinals. All right, let's hit the other quarters of, of this draw. And to me, the, the, you know, the, the first quarter, the top quarter, has Barty and Kvitova, and they both met in uh, the quarterfinals last year, so they could play in the quarterfinals this year again. But before we get to that match, that possible match, uh, the, the other quarter that, that fascinates me, I mean, the second quarter is loaded. You've talked about the bottom quarter with Svitolina and Pliskova, but the quarterfinal, the, the quarter of the draw that really fascinates me is that third quarter. And, and in recent WTA major tournament draws, Mert, I mean, you know this as well as I do, there seems to be a quarter that's especially loaded, and this year that's the second quarter. And if there's one quarter that's loaded, there seems to be another quarter, of course, that's going to be wide open. And that third quarter jumps out to me, Mert, as a wide open quarter. So first off, assess that quarter, that third quarter in general. This is the Benchich Halep quarter. Uh, assess it in general, but then also provide a player who could be that dangerous floater who becomes the, you know, one of those surprise semifinalists. We usually have them at a WTA major so take take those two parts of of this third quarter of the Australian Open draw. Yes, I would, from from those those two quarters, and I looked at uh, that quarter a lot too. And you are right; there are a couple of players with golden opportunities there to get to the to possibly get to the semis, depending on how early rounds play out. But uh, for example, Donna Vekic uh, is playing Maria Sharapova first round. I mean, that's the, the, that's that's going to be one of the more interesting matchups of the first round. But let's 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 say that Vekic somehow makes it past Sharapova, she and then she's going to have to take on Sabalenka, uh, second round. Assuming so, no third round, third round. Assuming that Sabalenka gets to the third round also, and and I and I think for a player like Vekic, that's uh, although she's mentally tough, a good player. So I I love the way she uh, she pulls out matches from impossible situations. She's one of those players who you, that you can never count count off, it's going to be hard for her to, um, to go all the way to the quarters there because she's going to have some some challenges. But uh, another player, that that uh, another low-profile pro, low player, so to speak, Karolina Muchova, who's seated 20, on the other hand, has the opportunity of a lifetime here to possibly make it to the quarterfinals. Now, Simona Halep is the big, uh, big star in that quarter, and she would have to play her in the round of 16s if she makes it that far. But Muchova can make it that far. I'm looking at her draw. There's Kirsten Flipkins, Tatiana Maria, and Sissi Bellis. Those are her three opponents in the first and second round, so to speak. 
uh, I think she can get past those. That it would not be, it would not be, a, it would be an upset, in my opinion, if she does, if she does not get past those. And then there's the Belgian Elise Mertens, a tough player, but one that Muchova can also get past. And then you're looking at the possibly facing uh, Danielle Collins, Simona Halep, uh, round of 16. So that would be her big test. But just like you said, this is a rather uh, maybe not as loaded quarter of the draw. And and just like you said, we have those once in a while, a player who makes who has a smashing tournament. And I think this draw here looks like a good opportunity to for everyone in the even the casual fan in the tennis world to her to to hear of Carolina Muchova. If she you know if she was to make it to the semifinals, for example, or quarterfinals or semifinals, for me it would not be that shocking. But I think for for uh, for it would it would definitely create echoes in the in the in the world of tennis. Then then you got uh, you know you you have Belinda Bencic on top there on top of this draw. You have Contevate. Who's uh, who's who just came back from a long recovery? So you can't really count Bencic out. I'm not sure if Bencic um, can make it to can make it past this quarter. In other words, uh, you know, I, first of all, if Simona Halep is in form and has to face Bencic, I think it's a bad matchup for Belinda Bencic. But uh, but if, but if for Muchoma, Bencic is not a bad matchup. You know, she can she can she can outplay Bencic in my opinion if she has to play her. And then there's Sabalenka, the hard hitter. Okay, you know, when you have someone with Sabalenka's firepower and she's and she strings together four great matches in a row, of course she could make it that far. But the bottom line is this is a much more open or or opportunistic part of the draw if you're a player who wants to make a splash, a low-profile player who wants to make a splash in a major. And I, I I really like Carolina Muchova. I'm curious to see how she how far she goes there. Okay. Um, at the staying with this quarter, at the 2019 U.S. Open, as we know, Taylor Townsend upset Simona Halep in the second round with a very aggressive brand of tennis. And so here in Australia, we have Simona Halep opening up against Jennifer Brady, who beat uh, Maria Sharapova last week and and collected other big wins last week and then if if Halep is able to get by Brady she could face Danielle Collins who has been ripping opponents left and right uh, in the few weeks of 2020 so Mm -hmm. you know Halep against the Americans it's a it's an intriguing plot line you know Taylor Townsend upset her at the U.S. Open so and of course we have the memory of in 2018 uh, Halep playing that that long epic match against another American, Lauren Davis. So let's say Halep has to go through multiple Americans in the first week. How how do you how much of a threat level do you think exists for Halep against these uh, American opponents? I think the, out of those American opponents that you just mentioned, Danielle Collins presents the biggest threat because because uh, she's an informed player who can um, who can perhaps outpower her opponents. But even then, I would if if, uh, if Collins beating Halep uh, in the third round of the Australian Open to me would be a major upset. Uh, I, I I do think that Halep with her foot speed can can withstand the um, the the bazooka, so to speak, that the Collins is, can 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 throw at her. But uh, and you and you mentioned Jennifer Brady, who, and I'm a huge fan of Jennifer Brady. I think she's one of the most high IQ players 
in, in, in women's tennis and, 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 and a great overachiever too. She, she wins a lot of matches from impossible situations, from being down a set in, in a break. And, uh, you know, if, if there are any young, if there are any coaches who want to show to their juniors, 12, 14 juniors, someone's body language, concentration on the court, Jennifer Brady would be the, one, of the, one of the players that I would recommend to them to take their players to, to watch. So I'm a big fan of Jennifer Brady. I just don't know if, um, I, I, actually, I don't think, uh, let me just be honest here, uh, uh, that would be a, an upset of epic proportions if Brady uh, beats Simona Halep, unless Simona Halep is just having an absolutely crappy day. But, but Danielle Collins is positive. It's a possibility. That is not an, uh, that is not so far out there for Collins to upset Halep on, on a given day. But uh, uh, so, but to answer your question, uh, Matt, I still think that Halep will make it through these Americans that you just mentioned. All right, let's finish up by going to that top quarter. And so Barty Kvitova is, you know, the, the matchup that uh, most people are going to uh, focus on as, as a potential quarterfinal. You know, and we could have three absolutely sensational women's quarterfinals. You know, Pliskova, Svitolina, as we talked about, Serena Osaka being the ultimate blockbuster, and then Barty Kvitova not being very far behind. When you look at this quarter of the draw, Mert, uh, you know, a few obvious names stand out. Madison Keys, Allison Risk, who beat Barty at Wimbledon. Uh, rate the, the chances of someone getting in the way of a Barty Kvitova repeat quarterfinal in Australia. Someone who can get in the way of, the, of that quarterfinal could be Madison Keys, uh, who, uh, who just recently defeated uh, Petra Kvitova. That, Matt, that was your question, right? Because you just cut out for just a second, so I want to make sure I heard it right. Who, who could yeah. stop Barty Kvitova? Yeah, who's going to... Who do you think has a, a particularly good chance of getting in the way of that Barty Kvitova matchup? Yes, I would have to go with Madison Keys if that's the question. Well, there's also Allison Risk, you know, in that uh, in that same same quarter. And, uh, and if I'm not if I'm correct, the, the Risk beat uh, Barty at Wimbledon. And uh, but in all fairness, that's uh, that's Allison's favorite sur- surface and favorite major, and uh, she 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 had a good tournament there. But uh, outside of that. Um, Perhaps Madison Keys, maybe, uh, uh, but I don't see Kvitova having any problems in the, in the in the early rounds. I think she will make it to the to the uh, to the fourth round, and uh, and face Keys there most likely. Yeah, you would. I would most likely go with Keys. So that that's the first really dangerous test for K- Petra Kvitova, in my opinion. For Barty, uh, the, the again, I don't see her having any. Problems in the in the very first in the first two rounds or even the third against against uh, Sasnovich, Hera or Ribakina. So I see her getting to the fourth round also. And there, if Alison Risk makes it that far, it'll be a it'll be a you know it'll be a threat for uh, for Barty. One that I I actually see her getting through this time, you know. And then the and then you got a couple of other unseeded players there, Julia Gorges and Kuzmova. Uh, you know, in Allison's side, so it's not sure. It's not for sure that Allison makes it that far. There's also Petra Martic, uh, but I would take. I would. I don't see the. It would be an upset again. I would call it an upset if Barty and Kvitova don't meet in the quarterfinals. There, the only one that I would not really call an upset would be Keys Barty 
you know, if Keys beats uh, Kvitova and gets gets to the quarterfinals to, to to play Barty, that would not really be a major upset. But um, but otherwise, I see the Barty Kvitova quarterfinal happening, and that'll be interesting in the sense that uh, Ashley Barty beat her um, uh, three out of the last four times, including last year's uh, Australian Open. So it, it, you know it'll be interesting to see. But but the two wins that Kvitova did get over Barty last year were were both on hard courts and outdoors. So uh, if you, you know Australian Open, of course, is outdoors and hard courts, and Barty won that one. But Kvitova did beat her on two other occasions on outdoor hard courts last year, even once after the Australian Open in Miami. So this is a, you know it's it's going to be a, a super interesting match. To watch if they both make it that that far, but I would still not call it. I mean, in in terms of storyline that I that I'm going to be interested in following, I would put that matchup if it if it happens just a nudge, nudge just a nudge below uh, Osaka and Williams and Pliskova and Svitolina. In terms of my personal interest, you know, it, it depends on what uh, other viewers feel. All right, Mert, final question for me before I hand it over to Sakib for the ATP half of the 2020 Australian Open draw. And that is not about any spe- specific match, but about the environment, the conditions. I mean, so, you know, I have my own opinions on this, but I think we at least have to talk about it. And I, I, I do want to get your opinion on the plane of this tournament and how much indoor tennis uh, will need to be played. Uh, you know how the 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 level of air quality uh, factors into uh, the decisions that Craig Tiley and Tennis Australia are going to have to make over the next two weeks, and how we assign levels of competitive value and significance to the matches that are, are going to be played. You know what what is your fundamental uh, opinion uh, on, on all of these interrelated concerns because. This is not a normal circumstance, and uh, it would be, I think, irresponsible of us at tennis with an accent if we just ignored it and treated this just like any other major tournament. It's not. So, what is your fundamental reaction? No, you are you are uh, right on point, Matt. You know, this is a the majors have 128 players in the draw, and and this is one one extreme case where there's 129th player in the draw. Because you asked, for example, one of your earlier questions in this podcast was, uh, who do you see in a, speci- in, a, in a certain quarter of the draw as someone who could create, you know, who could create chaos uh, in the early rounds? Or, well, here's someone, I mean, not someone, literally, but here's an 129th player in the major who could create chaos in the early rounds. The, 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 we don't know how a lot of these players... Uh, are going to handle bad air quality. I'm not sure. I don't have a list of players who have asthma asthma problems or who have breathing problems. But if the air quality is no better than you know during the first week than it was during the qualifying week, I think we're bound to have some incidents. And uh, and uh, and you know once again you know we're talking about recovery from injury or players who are in form, out of form. What about how the players deal with that? You could have a favorite, a, a clearly favorite player on a court who doesn't handle it very well, 
and loses and you have a major upset that way. Now it's going to go into the records as, you know, saying underdog B defeated large favorite A, but, it, but in fact, it's not really uh, the, the player defeating the, 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 the favorite, but perhaps favorite suffering from a circumstance that has not existed in any of the previous majors. So, um, you know, it's, it's an unknown. It's, it's definitely a, a factor. And, uh, and I think um, I just hope for, for the tournament's sake and for everyone's sake, first of all, but I also hope for the tournament's sake that we don't have a really unfortunate and bad looking, like bad optics incident with one of the top players or one of the high profile players because I don't know how they're going to get how they are going to deal with that if that happens. I mean that that uh, you know with what what happened with that Yakupovich in the in the set, in the court in the qualifying rounds, you know who had to start who, who caught a coughing uh, um, who, who went into you know this unstoppable coughing crisis and had to retire from the match. I mean just imagine if 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 uh, if that was one of the high profile top players in the main draw on the men's side or on the women's side who ends up doing that are we just going to simply continue to put put matches on and have the schedule continue like it did it happened the qualifying but I don't think it'll happen if the, if if the scenario I just uh, I just mentioned uh, really takes place so uh, so you know it, it it can be it can be where we finish the tournament and we get through it. And looking back, everybody, everyone can look good and say we made the right decision, you know, in retrospect. But uh, but it's kind of a, it's 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 one of these, you know, in, like in cartoon, old cartoon shows. Tom and Jerry, you see this uh, bomb, you know, a black ball with a little uh, filter about the, that can that someone can just ignite and blow. And it's just sitting there, and that's that's the way I feel with the situation. You know, it can it can ignite at any moment. Yeah, Mert, I I very much agree, and and I just want to say to all the listeners of this uh, tennis with an accent podcast, sponsored by Australia's Stats Insider, that uh, you know tennis with an accent is not doing a, a lot of preview material just because I don't think it's the kind of tournament that you try to hype up uh, because be precisely because we have this environmental catastrophe and something which is a risk to players. So, you know, we're not going to do our normal staff picks. And if people are wondering why that's, that's happening, it's just because it, this isn't a normal situation. And I don't want to feed for anyone in any direction, the idea that losing early in this tournament you know, is a, is a negative for your tennis season or your career. I, I just think that kind of normal assessment of, you know, this is an important tournament for this player, so on and so forth. I just think that framework doesn't work. I think that whoever wins the tournament deserves all the normal praise we do apply to a winner of, of a major tournament. But I think as the losers or people who lose early, they don't deserve uh, the kind of criticism we might normally uh, bring to that. So, so Mert, thank you for all of your analysis on the women's half. And now I'm going to hand over the show to my co-host, Saqib Ali, for analysis of the men's draw. Saqib, it's all you. All right, Matt. Uh, so that was quite a 
uh, sign off here and uh, let's talk ATP. I'm coming in the 40 minute mark. I'm the relief pitcher here. So, Mert, uh, where do you want to start with? Uh, I was just studying the draw and uh, I just want to kick off the discussion. What is a good draw? What is a bad draw? And uh, for example, so you could be drawing uh, the highest of the lower seed, but it can be, you know, it can be a bad draw if that seed is not playing well. And it can be a, you know, depending on, you know, how you view it from. For example, if you view it from, say, Nadal's point of view, he can play Hachinov, for example, in the round of 16. Hachinov really hasn't been lighting it off. So is that a, is that a good draw or a bad draw? Take it away. Yes, the, the, uh, good question. Saki, a lot of times when um, when we look at the draws at, at first, you know, there are, there are seeds, there are numbers next to the seeds. So we tend to think, okay, you know, ninth seed, eighth seed, 17th seed, or maybe the player may have won a tournament just last week. But, you know, we may not, and that may be, you know, due to the recency bias, we may, we may consider that as a more important factor than, say, that player's record against the favorite person in that half of the draw. Uh, so a lot of things come into, uh, come into question there. A good draw to me, regardless of the, of the seeds or who they are or what their names are, is when you have players on your side of the draw with whom you match up well game-wise. And, and, and especially in early rounds, for example, um, if you're one of the top seeds, a number one seed, number two seed, or number three seed in a major what you would like to have are players in in the early rounds, meaning, uh, you know, uh, uh, who you play before the next weekend arrives, you know, first, second, and third round. If you have players in the early rounds that, that match up with you well game-wise, or perhaps players from your country that know you well and who against whom you may have some sort of a an aura advantage, so to speak, you know, so some sort of an image advantage that puts you up a break already as you walk onto the court against your opponent. Or, or, you know, or players that play the same style as you, but you do everything a little bit better. That's a good draw. You know, that's a good draw. Those those types of early, early wins puts you into the, into the first weekend or perhaps into the second week, into fourth round without having taxed your body and mind and you're ready to go at the at the at the big time tests that are coming up in front of you there that's how i would define a good draw i think i couldn't have said it uh, much better and i was actually fishing for that kind of an answer because we as fans we always dissect over analyze and uh, like you said it someone could be a bad matchup for player a and could be riding a you know, hot hand and then come in the tournament and they draw player B and everything changes. It's not that big a uh, matchup. So on that note, let's uh, kick this conversation off uh, by looking at the draw. Let's talk about the world number one, uh, Rafael Nadal, uh, who's played a lot of tennis by his own admission. This is, I think, there was this is not even an off-season because Davis Cup finals in Madrid were played way late into, uh, you know, the twilight of uh, last decade and last year. And then... Uh, just after you know New Year's, and the tournament started uh, in uh, ATP ATP Cup, the, the new the new venture which we really haven't talked about. So let's talk about uh, Nadal's first. Is he is he coming into the t- uh, tournament playing too much tennis? Uh, what is your speculation? Have you seen enough of him? Uh, and then there's a loss to Djokovic. And just uh, talk uh, 
uh, s- summarize you know your thoughts on Rafa and you know the, how the transition happened from last year to this year and where where we stand now a few days before the first balls being hit in Melbourne. I do think Rafa played a lot of tennis. Uh, I do I do believe that it's a, it, it would be uh, I think blind. It, it, I mean I would I keep, there's this is not something to, that you can turn a blind eye to. He has played a lot of tennis, so yes, it is a bit of a risky move on his part. To play both, and and uh, and it could hurt him. It could hurt him if he ends up, you know, being challenged in the early rounds. You know, having played that much tennis, plus if he gets challenged in the first week, then say ends up playing one or two tough matches before he gets to the quarterfinals, for example. Then yes, that'll work against him. And uh, and if he ends up losing in the quarters or semis, you will look back and say. Well, you know, he just played too much tennis, but and and, and quite frankly, there it's you you wouldn't say it as an excuse for his loss, but rather as, a, as something he should have handled better. Okay, but and that goes for um, for pretty much every player. But uh, you know, so that which then turns our eyes to who Nadal has to play in the early rounds, and I'm looking at his early rounds, and I think he drew, I think he drew a. He has a pretty good draw in terms of early first two or three rounds. I do see him getting through those rounds without too much pain. In other words, without you know thrilling four set matches or 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 three hours and forty five minutes grinding four set matches or even a five set match. I don't see him having any any anything like that until the fourth round. So the, 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 his early rounds are, are a blessing for someone like him who has played a lot of tennis uh, lately. And then he would have to, he would have to play, uh, you know, Kachanov and Nick Kyrgios is there too. So, uh, so that'll be a tough, um, that'll be a tough, uh, tough test for him. But once again, I mean, you know, this is, this draw here is, uh, is, is a good one for Nadal because he's playing, because he's got a lot of clay court specialists in his very small section of the draw there, there are three qualifiers that are going to come in, but they, he's not going to have to face any of them uh, unless one of them beats Carreño Busta. And, uh, but so if Carreño Busta comes to the third round there, you're looking at Nadal playing Hugo Delian, the winner of Del Bonis Sosa, and Carreño Busta. And those, those players fit into that profile that I described earlier who, in my opinion, are going to have a very tough time providing Nadal with any type of challenge that could push him, you know, to that fourth set, to that fifth set. That matters, even if he ends up winning it, in terms of long-term uh, tournament physical prowess. prowess. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially yeah. the first three opponents, uh, the possible, including Carino Busta, I think, and Del Bonis and Sosa. Nadal's, I think, 10-0. and 0. And he's rarely dropped sets against these guys. Uh, of course, it can get tricky if he does play uh, Kyrgios and Hachanov. Hachanov is someone who's played and competed against him really well, but he's still 0-7 against uh, Rafa Nadal. And uh, Hachanov himself hasn't really inspired much of confidence. He's had a uh, mixed bag of results. He, you know, he won a few matches in the ATP Cup. So, Bert, again, uh, whenever you're here, I have to bring technique. And we, we've talked about Hachanov. Uh, for a few years now, a lot of people compare him with Safin, but I see a fundamental difference. I mean, you're the coach here. I don't think he wins too many points on the forehand side. And uh, he hits a very heavy ball, but his backhand and serve are good. But I think to beat one of the big three, 
I think you need to have all cylinders firing and uh, talk about Hachanov's forehand. Is it somewhat of a liability and compared with Marat Safin, if you recall his game? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't compare the two either personally. I, I think Marat Safin had had a fundamentally sound uh, strokes on, on, on all corners. Uh, even his volleys, you know, that he didn't use that much were, uh, were still fairly sound. Uh, his forehand, his backhand, he could uh, generate power from both sides, but not just generate power, but, uh, but, but, but be precise with them too. And I also think that Safin was a better athlete than, than Katanov. Not that Katanov is a slow, slow player by any means, but uh, Safin was just a better athlete who could hit better shots on the run. And um, uh, Katanov's backhand is a heck of a backhand, but it's not better than Safin's backhand. And Safin's forehand is certainly better than Kachanov's. And, you know, for all the power that Kachanov generates, you know, his forehand sometimes uh, lacks power. You know, it's, it's, it, I just contradicted myself in that sentence. But with the grip that he has and with the preparation that he has, he has to, get, he has to be able to hit the ball at a certain spot, shoulder level or maybe chest level. You know, he has to catch the ball on the bounce at a certain spot in the, to be able to really so-called nail the ball. Whereas uh, you know, if if you feed him a low uh, slice or, or or a shot that's kind of going away from him to, to, towards the outside of the singles line, he's going to have trouble uh, creating pace off of that. Uh, as powerful a game as he has, he's going to have trouble creating pace off of that, which is a problem that Marat Safin didn't have at his best. So no, there's a there's quite a difference between the two. I mean, in terms of Nadal having a real challenge in that first. Uh, uh, I don't want to say quarter of the draw, but the, the first four rounds, Nick Kyrgios would be the one that would present the biggest challenge to, to, to Rafa Nadal if they end up playing at all. Yeah, common friend Susie made a good point, uh, I think on Twitter somewhere, maybe in one of the threads. And she said, look, Nick in best of five is always a question mark. But I mean, with the bushfires in Australia, this is maybe the time when Nick plays, you know, for the home country and, you know, just as more personal and more emotional reasons. So Nick Kyrgios may have some, you know, something to say. And uh, uh, who do you like in that match if uh, Hachinov and uh, Kyrgios get together like they did in Cincinnati a few months ago uh, for the right to face Nadal? Again, you know, not a first ball has been hit, but where's coach Artunga leaning if the Kyrgios-Hachinov match does take place? Well, assuming they both get they both get there, and it's not a hundred percent guarantee that they both get there. I mean, there there are some sleep. There's a couple. There are a couple of sleepers there, but it would be an upset if they don't get there. So, assuming they both are in the third round, I would pick Kyrgios in that match in Australia. I'm going to go with Kyrgios. And does it bother you that Kyrgios in the best of five format hasn't really played well in the last few years? You think that's an issue, or you think uh, well, it's it can be it can be discounted because he's playing at home and if he doesn't spend too much energy, uh, how do you see uh, that issue? You know that's been talked about not only Nick many players but Nick definitely you know hasn't had the results in the longer format. Yeah, no, maybe he hasn't had the results, but I would not I would I would I would make a distinction between not having the results and not playing well. Uh, for example, in the match that he lost to to Nadal. Uh, at Wimbledon, he played well. He, he ended up losing, but but he played well. So he, he can. He, I mean, he said that he said wins before in his career. I mean, if if we're going to mention, you know, if we're going to try to group players into uh, into like uh, newbies to fight to best of five set format or inexperienced or not enough, uh, uh, you know, matches under their belt yet type of categories, 
Kyrgios would go into the more, you know, more experienced, one of the more experienced players in terms of playing five set, uh, five set matches. So he's a, uh, he's, he's not, uh, he's nothing new to the best of five format match. And, and uh, I think what, what I think where he lacks is going far in the tournament, but we're not talking far here. We're talking third round match between, uh, between him and Kachanov. I think he can easily get there. And he can and, and he can win that match, and he can present Nadal with a pretty good challenge. That's not out of the realm uh, of possibility. He can. Uh, I don't. I, uh, it, this is in again. This is in Australia, and just like you said, you know, if the crowd uh, supports him, he gets uh, he gets uh, extra energy from that. So this is a good environment for for Kyrgios to do well. The problem for Kyrgios would be if he does really somehow you know pull the incredible upset, or he all of a sudden has another one of these career tournaments where he has a chance to f- break through in a, in a major towards late in the tournament. Will he have enough then to go on in the quarterfinals and semifinals? That would be the big question. But I thought, but I don't see him necessarily suffering from some, tour, some sort of a syndrome of not uh, doing well in the majors in the second or third round. To answer your question. Yeah, that'll be a thing of television beauty and, you know, like box office beauty if Nadal Kyrgios get together. The record is 4-3 slightly in favor of Nadal. They're 1-1 at the lawns of Wimbledon and Kyrgios has a slight edge 2-1 in the outdoor hard courts. But that, you know, you can throw that stat out of the book because this is going to be best of five sets on Rod Liver Arena under the lights. So let's look at uh, Nadal's quarterfinal opponent, which is Dominic Team Again, for me, he's one of the big players along with Medvedev coming in who I think could win a major this year. So I want your thoughts. One, is he the toughest opponent or the easiest opponent Nadal could have drawn in the last eight? And how do you look at Dominic Team's progression and uh, can he succeed on the surface? Yes, he can, he, he can succeed on the surface. I do like his progression. Uh, of course, it's a, it's a much slower progression than, than what he's shown on clay course over the last five years. But it is coming, uh, coming forward nevertheless. And I do think that he has a good draw here. Uh, I do see him reaching quarterfinals without that much trouble. You know, once again, we're looking at uh, uh, how P- how players are going to ha- are going to handle second week tennis. You know, when they have to answer big questions, and one of the ways to be ready for those questions is not to have taxed yourself too much earlier in the tournament. And I think this draw that uh, you know Dominic Team has here could put him in the quarterfinals, and I'm not even talking about fourth round here in the quarterfinals without really having uh, used too much of too much of gas in his tank you know he could uh, uh, let, let, let me put it to you this way Saki. if team gets to the quarterfinals and still hasn't lost a set it would not be a big big uh, uh, surprise for me and then in that if that is the case I think he would present a real uh, question mark a real challenge to Nadal, if Nadal makes it that far, that would be a quarterfinal that I would be very, very interested in, in in watching. Especially considering that Rafael Nadal has has played a lot of tennis, and let's imagine that once again he does have he does get challenged at least one time and has to play one tough four setter or five setter, but still manages to win. And then he has to play Dominic Team. That's going that's going to be a um, a very um, uh, he's, go- he's going to have to endorse some pain. You know, the, the Rafa always talks about um, 
you know, he, he you know, he likes to, you know, he, he, he feels like pain is the, is something that he feels, but his passion for the game always over, overcomes pain. He gets motivated from a, from a physical tr- struggle. Well, there he will have it right there with uh, Dominic team in that scenario. And you know, the interesting stat in their head to head is Nadal leads at nine, four. And out of those 13 matches, 12 have been on both of them's beloved clay. And the one time they got together on a hard court, that was quite an epic match a year and a half ago at the U.S. Open in 2018, and there was not much that separated the two. So I think that's going to be very interesting if Dominic Team, you know, uh, comes in and uh, takes on uh, Rafa Nadal in the quarterfinals. So the other question that I had is, of all the uh, bottom bottom four seeds in the top eight, is Team the toughest matchup for Nadal on this surface? Or you think uh, there are other tough matchups uh, he could have had, like Sitsipas? Or what's your view on, you know, this particular matchup on... Uh, this particular coat. No, he could have. He could have had uh, uh, tough matches. His team is not the only tough matchup. Sitsipas would have been another uh, uh, tough matchup. Or um, you know, th- there are some players that could have, in my opinion, given him at least uh, so- some challenges. You know, David Goffin on a good day can can uh, can make. Now, I don't think he can beat him, but he can give him a good match. You know, D- D- Dimitrov on a good day. These are players that are. Uh, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, six, seven, eight seeds, but these are players that could give him uh, tough matches. So, you know, a, a guy like uh, Hubert Hurkacz, you know, could could give him a tough match. So, no, there are some other players, but uh, Dominic Tim is one of the tough ones for sure. You know, the, 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 again, but you know, we're talking about quarterfinals here, so it's not like a player number one seed of a tournament. Uh, is going to just simply have a cakewalk all the way to the, through the semis or to the finals. So you know he's gonna he's gonna face a real um, strong challenge somewhere, and Dominic Team does present that strong challenge. The, the, you know we can, we can mention two or three other players, but they're not going to be much better challenges for Nadal than uh, Dominic Team is. Okay, so now let's get into some tricky waters, uh, and I'm gonna put you through the test because I know you love these questions. So Nadal's drawn uh, Daniel Medvedev in the semifinals. So you think that's uh, a, a matchup, you know. I know the fans probably want Nadal versus Federer, but you think, uh, given their form, you think at this stages of this career, is Medvedev a more formidable foe on hard courts than Roger Federer uh, for Rafa Nadal, or is too early to say because they both haven't played on a hard court in quite some time? No, no. Uh, there, my answer is clear. Uh, I don't know if the viewers may or may not agree, or you or you may not agree. The, the, the way you pose that question, I would pick Federer without without a second of doubt. I mean, who's the more formidable opponent at this point? You know, in 2020, January, here we are, and you're asking me if in the semis, uh, Medvedev or Federer, which one out of the two would pose Nadal uh, a more daunting challenge? I would go with Federer. Given the fact that, again, no disrespect to Roger, the great man, given the fact that Daniel Medvedev has played Nadal really tough the last two times and could have won or should have won, you know, at least one of those two matches, the World Tour Final and U.S. Open. Uh, is, is it something still that Roger has turned in the last few years of the rivalry that will carry over when, if the two were to face off? Again, hypothetical, but, you know, that's what these draws, you know, make you wonder what could have happened and what will happen. Wait, uh, I got confused there. You, you, you mean Medvedev or Federer? Uh, I, I'm leaning more towards Federer. I mean, since you said uh, Medvedev, uh, Federer is a more formidable foe. I thought... Uh, you will give yes, but, some weight to Medvedev because he played Rafa very tough in the last two outings. 
But we're, you, you, when when we're saying Nadal Federer, we're talking hypothetical, right? Because they're not in the same half. You, yes, that's, uh, that's probably a final. Okay. Okay. No. Yeah, in the finals. Okay. Okay. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Uh, so um, no, if uh, no, no, Medvedev is a is a don't get me wrong, Medvedev is a formidable opponent. But you know, you just for example said the last two times they played, Medvedev played Nadal. He gave him uh, uh, a lot of challenge. Well, you know, again, if we're comparing in terms of who sh- who 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 against who, Nadal uh, has a bigger challenge. Well, the last uh, few times that Federer played Nadal on hard courts, he beat him. So. Um, it's uh, you know it's one thing to it's one thing to just say, well the last couple of times they played so and so, but Medvedev is still a newcomer to the to the to the to the to the arena of majors, you know with just because he reached the finals in the uh, at the U.S. Open and played an incredible match against Nadal, uh, let's let's not yet uh, even put in the same basket in my opinion. Uh, a match versus Federer in the semifinals in a major versus a match versus Medvedev in the semifinals of a major. There's a mountain of difference between the two. The first one, the former, a match against Federer in the majors in the semifinals of a major, had Federer been on this half, would have been a more daunting challenge than Medvedev. If okay. they were to be playing the same. Fair enough. We'll, we'll uh, you know, take a deeper dive when we talk Federer. But let's talk about Medvedev. Again, if you've studied his draw, uh, what stands out? How far can he go? Are there any tricky matchups? He starts against TFO. Uh, so talk about you know Medvedev's draw and uh, what do you see happening there in the first week? No, I like his draw. I think he's going to he's going to get out of there uh, all the way to the quarterfinals. He, you know, he's, he does have Songa. Uh, Songa himself has a very tricky first round against Alexei Popperin. Uh, good, good match there. I'd be interested to watch that one. But then, uh, but then afterwards, the winner of that match I see going to the third round to to face Medvedev, and, and, and Medvedev I think will get there. Uh, uh, Medvedev should go through that, in my opinion. He should, he should get to the fourth round without too much trouble. Where he can and, run into Wawrinka. Then he can run into Wawrinka. Yes, in the fourth round he can run into Wawrinka, and that's a, that that presents a real uh, real challenge there. And if Wawrinka has an on day. He, not, he, he doesn't just beat Medvedev, but he can beat just about anybody in the draw if he has a good day. And then he's done, and he's done, and he has a history of doing well in the Australian Open. It's one of his, one of his uh, better uh, um, uh, majors. So that'll be a legitimate challenge for Medvedev. But uh, but if he get if he makes it past that that challenge, then you're looking at uh, him playing in the quarterfinals against somebody from the group of Goffin. Uh, Rublev, Zverev, and I see him making through making it through that. So I actually like Medvedev draw. I mean, I, if you ask me, out of the top four seeds, who has the mo the, the clearest path to the semis? I'm going to pick Medvedev. Okay, so I think so I think that, he can make it through those. No, I think that's a, that's a likely scenario. Uh, what's your view on Stan Wawrinka? I know we haven't spoken about him in a while. The way he ended the year, a lot of uh, folks. In the tennis community are expecting you know some sort of a last hurrah not like he's going to retire or anything but they think there's some tennis left us in uh, in terms of contending or causing uh you know causing upsets or going deep he's improved his ranking uh so medvedev got the better of Wawrinka at the u.s open and those days the condition was i think slightly windy on ash but uh if the two were to square up uh, uh where do you see stan he hasn't played i think he played uh, actually doha 
and he lost uh, in the semis to Mute there. Uh, did, I don't know if you mm-hmm. got to see any of his matches and what do you think of the reunion, uh, rematch of the US Open? I did I did not see them, uh, him playing Doha, so I, so I, I can't comment on that. But to, as, as an overall uh, performance trend line, uh, I don't think Wawrinka is where he is in the 2014-2017 era. And I don't think his game is there, and I'm not sure that he'll get it back. I think an informed Medvedev, you know, the Medvedev that we've seen in the second half of the year last year, I think uh, um, ousts uh, Wawrinka, in my opinion. Wawrinka would have, to, would have to all of a sudden pull one of the best matches of, his, of the last, say, couple of years to, in order to beat Medvedev. If he does that anyway, I mean, if that does happen, if Wawrinka does play the best match uh, that he's played in the last year or two and, and, and blows Medvedev off the court with his power, then you have to consider Wawrinka as, as a legitimate favorite to, uh, to, to do damage to anybody. To, to win the tournament, perhaps. You know, then we're back to that situation where we have the big three in Wawrinka for uh, the, you know fighting for the title. Then we're we're back to that situation. But I don't think it'll happen. I think Medvedev is gonna is is gonna um, uh, is going to survive that uh, that's that uh, stand that that fourth of the draw and, and make it to the semifinals without too much trouble either. I think uh, I think Wawrinka would have to pull a really incredible match to. To overcome Medvedev if they end up meeting in the fourth round. Okay, fair enough. So let's uh, take a quick look at Sasha Zverev again. Uh, he he's having some hard time, I think. You know, getting his confidence back, and it's uh, some issue or the other. He looked decent uh, at the end of the year, but then again, his uh, serving bows have returned. Uh, what's happening there again? You know, from far we don't know. He was pretty candid in an interview where he just said that he can't serve. So what, what's happening there? And you know, in can he can he regroup soon for a major, or do you think his woes uh, there's you know more to tennis or more than tennis at this point? And uh, where do you where do you stand with him, given no, the crisis? Play, yeah, no, a player of that caliber, um, uh, Sakim. When you've reached a certain level, which he has the top ten level, and you won uh, a couple of a couple of uh, tennis one, you know ATP one thousand tournaments, and you've reached the second round of majors a few times. In other words, you're a bona fide top 10 player for, for a year or two. I don't think you, a single shot to serve can all of a sudden bring you down to the point where your career just crumbles away. It's, it's not going to happen. He's, uh, in my opinion, he'll overcome this. Have there been players in the past who've had a serve problem and who never recovered from it? Yes, if you, in the history of open tennis, I'm sure we can, we can find two or three or four of them. You know, Guillermo Correa, for example, comes to my mind. Those are, that's a very rare case. I don't think Zverev is that. So no, I mean, Mert, you, you definitely you know, are yeah. onto something. But again, uh, I saw him play Shapovalov at the ATP Cup. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and his serve was, yeah. uh, you know, AOL in that match. But even when he got the serve in in a short ball, and then he would miss the forehands, any rally that would go beyond four or five strokes, he would miss. And then after the miss, his body language was an all-time negative. So yes. uh, while I respectfully agree with whatever you're saying, because, I mean, you know, you, you've tutored me a lot in tennis, but I still think one shot... It's not the matter of one shot, but I think there's something there that he's mentally, you know, it's kind of creeping in. He misses a serve and then his body language diminish and uh, he doesn't even look half the guy that, you know, played in the ATP uh, finals in London like two months ago. Yes, yes, there's, a, there's no doubt that it has a snowball effect and I agree with you, he's played dismal tennis 
Uh, let's just say it as it is. And I don't think he will do well in this tournament. I, I don't see him uh, getting uh, to the quarterfinals, to be honest with you. Even if he does get there, I don't see him getting past a, a good David Goffin or a good Rublev. Uh, I think I think they will beat him. I don't see Zverev doing well in this tournament. So it will take him for a while to recover from this. His body language looks bad. Uh, it, it, it did start with his serve. And yes, uh, his, his game overall has, uh, has you know, gone down. But uh, there also, let me also point this out, that some of the other players that have perhaps caught up with him or surpassed him are trying to play it all around, you know, uh, tennis. They have different things that they're trying. Uh, a lot of times I still see Zverev as playing from the baseline or a solid baseline player, even when he's playing well. A player with a big first serve, great backhand, solid baseline player who can hit winners from the from the corners of the court and who can win matches that way and who can do that longer in rallies that other players can but i still can i still what i would like to see Zverev do is is incorporate a more of an all-court game into his uh into his style perhaps use more angles more drop shots or come to the net more don't pass up on short balls when you get them don't try to go for a winner and step back to the baseline come to the net more those are the things that I would like to see Zverev do in order to get to the next level. Even if he rec- recovers from this slump, Sakin, if he doesn't develop his game in that direction, in my opinion, he will always be a great player, solid player, top 10 player. I'm just, I'm just not sure he's going to make that next step like Medvedev is poised to do, for example, or like Tsitsipas is poised to do. I think they have more of a, pot- a potential with their game. Even if Zverev was not on the slope. Yes, it's, uh, but you know we're talking about the Australian Open, and I kind of uh, digressed. Uh, I apologize for that. But no, I think that's I don't a, see him doing no, well. Here. That's a relevant digression because uh, a lot of folks thought like uh, calendar year change uh, would give Sasha Zverev, you know, some sort of a form uh, to build his next season on. But again, we are here, and uh, he his game looks, you know. Uh, some, with some serious question marks as far as this conference goes. So let's talk about the quickly talk about the other two guys, Goffin and uh, Rublev. Goffin had a big win over Nadal at the ATP Cup, and Rublev uh, is playing really well. So who, who do you fancy coming out of, from that section to uh, reach the quarterfinals against Matvedev? If you have to pick one name out of those two, yeah, I would pick with a, with a certain comfort level. I'll, I'm gonna going to add. I'm going to pick Goffin here to make it to the uh, to the quarterfinals against Medvedev. Do you think uh, it, I, it's, I do it's, think he's, it's going to hurt Rublev, who's uh, probably in the draw in uh, uh, this week. And uh, oh. if he goes, uh, you think uh, these these tournaments have a price to pay when these young guys, the week before a major, go deep, win or lose a final? You think this is a tough it, turnaround? There's a price to pay if he ends up playing four or five setters in the first two rounds. For example, there's a price to pay if he now, in the first round, he ends up playing a four-set match. And then he makes it to the second round. And in the second round, say, he plays Yuichi Sugita, who maybe takes him to another four-setter with a 7-6 in the fourth and the match lasts three hours and 50 minutes. And then he has to go in the third round and play Goffin. Yes, then there's a price to play for having played the tournament this week. Okay, but if he does, but if he does go through those first two rounds with 6-2-6-3-6-2 type of wins, then he'll still be okay. But again, if he wins the third round against Goffin, and then has to go on to the fourth round in the quarterfinals, that's when we find out if, if there's a price to pay for having played this week. 
do you see? I hope I made that clear. But uh, but uh, I think I think there there will be a price to pay against Goffin anyway because Goffin is a is a is a heck of a player. But the price to the but but, but it will be a, even a tougher challenge if after playing this week he has to play two tough or one tough five set match before even getting to play Goffin. You need a full tank and full focus and 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 a full cylinder clicking against a player like Goffin. And now with him playing this week, the chances of that, I mean, there's a higher risk of that of him not having that by the time he faces Goffin. Hmm. All right, so we'll definitely uh, keep track how that unfolds. Uh, yeah, and that's... also, Sakib, so sorry, I don't mean to cut you in the middle there, but if Goffin and Rublev both play, end up playing each other, that is a great match, but it's a tough matchup for, for Rublev, in my opinion, because, you, you, you know, you're going to play against someone who is super fast. Okay, Goffin is one of the fastest players on the, uh, in the... In, uh, in, uh, uh, and in the ATP. And it's just going to be very hard for Rublev to get the... Uh, to, to, to blow Goffin off the court. And furthermore, the, 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 the tough forehands that Rublev is, Goffin is going to step inside the court and take them back. Now, the one time they did play in the past, in 2017... Rublev beat him, but uh, but I think at this point, uh, you know, looking at both of their players, both their plays, I, I see Goffin as being really in form, and I don't see him uh, letting anybody get in the way really until the quarterfinals. Hmm. So let's uh, look at the bottom half, starting with Roger Federer's uh, section or quarter, and then uh, the name that stands out is Hubi Hurkac. Yesterday, when Alex Di Minore withdrew. Uh, I checked if Hubi is going to be seated, and he was going to be seated already because Luka Pui had withdrawn uh, long before you know the dates were announced. So now Hurkaj is someone who is undefeated this year. He's in the Auckland semis. Again, the same case that we can make for Rublev. Uh, could it be too much tennis? But we both have been also talking about him. I feel he was uh, uh, the toughest on the t- 28 to 32, those bottom four, so actually 29 to 32 seeds, and he lands in Federer's section so talk about that potential matchup can he trouble Federer you know uh, with uh, with the game he's been playing he's been coming to the net the transition game is there I know uh, Craig Boynton came in the podcast talked about his charge and we both have again uh, have this discussion so let's bring that discussion to the podcast Uh, so question a is who who be her ready for the big scene is he the toughest of the lowest of the 32 seeds and can he challenge Federer Yes, 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 and yes to all four of your questions. That's easy. Uh, <laughs> yes, Hurkacz uh, is a, is an excellent player. I agree completely with you that he is the, by far the toughest player uh, in in the in the lower seeds. And uh, yes, he can definitely challenge Federer. Not only Federer, but he can challenge any player, in my opinion. Especially if he gets to now. He, he, here's where you would not. I would put a little less stock on him if he were to play Federer, say, in the semifinals after having gone through maybe a couple of other tough players and having upset them. Then I would put a little bit of a less less stock in his ability to upset Roger Federer. But if he ends up playing him in, here in the third round, you know, still um, still fairly fresh and not having to gone through already a big challenge in the round before or maybe a 7-5 in the fifth, Type of match on the round before. Yes, he, he's he's definitely a dangerous uh, 
player, and and it's and it's a tough matchup. It's a, it's a tough uh, that's a tough uh, draw for Federer to have to play Hurkacz in the first in the third round if they both get there. Now Hurkacz, uh, you know, path to the third round is not that easy. Uh, he, he does have a qualifier in the first round, so we don't know that. But you know, John Millman and Hugo Umber are going to play each other, and the winner will play Urkac in the second round if Urkac wins. That's not an easy matchup. Should he win? Yes, I think Urkac should win. That you know, will be the favorite to win there. But that could end up being, uh, you know, a seven-five in the fourth. Uh, I don't know, maybe a, a five-set match that could possibly be. Three and a half hours, four hours taxing on the body, and then he has to play Federer. And with all the tennis that he just played, that would work to Federer's advantage. But if Federer has to play Hurkacz in the third round, a fresh Hurkacz, that's going to be uh, there is potential for for a major upset there. Yes, completely. And and let me tell you something else too. That that quarter of the draw would be for for a player like Hurkacz. That would that quarter of the draw is. You know, if if he gets it past if he gets past Federer, that quarter of the draw is a dream for a player like that. If all of a sudden in one tournament they want to put their name right up there in the headlines and have the whole world hear of them, that's a, you know that's a that would be a great opportunity for them. Yeah, and Hurkacz and Umber, I believe, uh, can also play in Auckland if if they both win their semifinals tonight. By the time we are recording this podcast, again, mm-hmm. Bert, I'm going to bring Marat Safin. One more comparison here. Maybe the shots and the mechanics don't look similar, but I remember the young Safin from 2000 to 2002, which was any in, before any injuries he's had, he used to move exceptionally well. And I see some dynamics that are similar. Hurkacz has easy power on both wings, moves exceptionally well, easy power on serve, the kick serve is there. Do you see any similarities or I'm just daydreaming here? No, no, not at all. In fact, that's a far more relevant or pertinent question to ask that than uh, than than Kachanov comparison with uh, with Safin, right? I mean, the Hurkacz game is is a lot more uh, uh, is a lot more in the same umbrella group. Let's put it under the same umbrella in uh, in, the, in terms of genre of game as uh, as Marat Safin. Yes, and you you summarize it very well. I, I can't really say it any better than that. Both good athletes, both good uh, good power from the baseline. And, uh, you know, variety on the serve, kick serve is there. Yes, definitely there's potential for Hurkacz to uh, to develop, you know, a Safin type of game. Although I would like Hurkacz again, once again, I would like to see Hurkacz um, integrate a little bit more an all-court all game. In, in other words, like a transition game. He's not afraid to come to the net by any means. You know, he will come to the net. And, and I think his volleys need a little bit of improvement. Uh, the, the, you know, in, in putting the ball away, especially on on low uh, volleys, but uh, but he will only get better in that by doing it. You know, by 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 going to the net. So I'm hoping to see a Hurkacz in this tournament, whether he loses early or late. I'm hoping to see a Hurkacz in this tournament, who just like Tsitsipas or even like Shapovalov, who comes to the net when he gets that short ball, who is willing to punish the ball, come to the net, and put the ball away at the net rather than going for that direct winner from the baseline. Hmm. So, yeah, that's definitely a match uh, that can happen. And, uh, uh, and thanks for being, you know, on Hubie Hurkacz. So let's switch to Roger Federer. Uh, unlike Rafa Nadal, 
he of course went to South America for his uh, tour with Sasha Zverev, but he did not play Davis Cup. He did not play the ATP Cup. So you think is Federer lacking match play, or you think those exos with Sasha Zverev kept him in shape? Uh, again, this is the best of five. It's a major. Uh, how do you see his rhythm and prep coming in? No, I, I, I don't think he likes play. Federer, Federer is used to sporadic uh, tournament uh, series or, or you know stretch of tournaments followed by stretch of weeks off. Uh, I don't. I don't believe lack of tennis will come into play. I think it's. I think what what will be the, the more important factor will, for him will be how well he plays in the first round or two. I think he'll win. I mean, I think he'll get past Steve Johnson and then the next round qualifier and Filip Krajinovic. I think he's going to win those matches. But Federer is the kind of player who builds confidence on good play. In other words, you know, he's not he's not one of these players who let's just make it to the next round. Let me just get to the next round, and by the time quarterfinal rolls around, I'll find good rhythm and roll forward. That's more of a Wawrinka type of pattern. Wawrinka can pull that off. I'm always of the opinion that Roger Federer has to feel good about his game, in the even in the early rounds as he as he wins. In other words, he he not only uh, would like to win in three straight sets, but also would like to feel good doing it. You know, play the right the kind of game, serve well, have a high first first serve percentage. Um, you know, go go for uh, to take the ball early, get a good rhythm, not shank too many balls. You know, in the early rounds, and that puts him in a good uh, good rhythm for the rest of the tournament. You know, he's not one to play long matches anyway. He plays pretty fast. His points don't last long. So again, though, that this is one of the reasons why Hurkacz, if he ends up playing playing in the third round, is a dangerous matchup because because um, he will have he will have just played two matches. If he plays well in those two matches, and I and and I and one shouldn't just look at the score and say he played well if he won six one six four six two, you know. I would, I'm actually going to go to try to watch the matches. Although in the early rounds, I try to watch watch um, non-seeded players, but I'm going to watch his first match or at least his second match or both, if possible, to see how he's actually performing on the court, you know, how how well his serve is going or how well he's moving, and then and then decide whether. Uh, you know, he's ready for Hukash or not. But if he doesn't play, but, but if he pulls off a, you know, shaky performance in the first two rounds and has to play Hukash in the third round, that's, that's, that's very dangerous. That's very dangerous. Okay, so another player living in the Federal section is the, the talented Southpaw from Canada, Denis Shapovalov, who under the, you know, uh, for the partnership with Mikhail Yuzny has shown, you know, some sort of resurgence in the shot selection, his results are adding up on a title in Stockholm, played Novak Djokovic extremely tough in ATP, uh, the ATP Cup last week. So he has a tricky match himself against uh, the talented Yannick Sinner. Uh, talk about Shapovalov, the improvements you've seen, and how tough of a draw that is if Shapovalov and Federer keep the date. Uh, Shapovalov has a tough draw, uh, even before Federer, in my opinion. I, th- I, I love the way Shapovalov is developing over the last couple of years, even before um, Yuzny came on board, because the, the, there is a player who who could just sit back in the baseline and f- try to fire winners from the baseline, which he was somewhat doing maybe two, two years ago or so. But what you've seen over the last year and a half or two with Shapovalov is when he gets that short ball, he comes in. He's not, and and he tries to finish, you know, put balls away at the at the net, forcing his opponents to pass him, and he's not just sitting there, you know, in, in the back of the baseline and and uh, and uh, hitting big uh, big bullets or back and forth. 
So I do like the development of his game. Yuzny, of course, helped big time. His serve has really improved, first and second serve. The placement has gotten better on his serve. He has now developed a little bit of a slice. So all the indications are are great with Shapovalov. It's looking good. It's just that, in my opinion, he has a tough draw. You know, he's, he's got to, even his first round, he's got to play Fuchsovic, who's who could give him a tough match. I mean, I, he should win. Shapovalov should win to go past it, but it, but I would be surprised if it's a blowout. I, I don't see that match being 6-2, 6-1, 6-3, for example. And then he has to play center, and a, the winner of center and qualifier, which is not a cakewalk cake by any means. And then he's going to have to play someone like Grigor Dimitrov, most likely. And Dimitrov is a seasoned uh, player in best of five sets and can do well. You know, in, 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 in certain, certain tournaments, he can go on a roll. He reached the semifinals. Um, at the U.S. Open, so uh, he's you know he's got a tough draw before he even gets to the point where he can play Federer in the fourth round. So unfortunately, I mean, I, I would love for Shapovalov to do well, but if if I were a big Shapovalov fan, I would be very upset that he didn't get the 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 the, the quarters above that one rather than this quarters right here. This is a tough draw that Shapovalov has. Mm. So is there anyone in this uh, section besides Ruby Hercaj who can trouble Roger Federer? And Roger Federer has Matteo Berrettini as a paired seed for the quarterfinals. Uh, yeah. So what do you see happening there? Anyone stopping Federer A from reaching the quarters? And then uh, Berrettini, who's coming from that section to join mm-hmm. Federer in the last eight? Yeah, but to, yeah, to answer you, you asked a two-part question. Your The first part of your question, no, I don't think anyone's... Uh, I, I think Hurkacz is, is as tough as it gets for Federer in that quarter of the of the draw. Uh, now, well, of course, Dimitrov, for example, in the in the next round would be also tough. Uh, or if Shapovalov makes it there, uh, not Shapovalov that much. That's a bad matchup. I think Federer would would take out Shapovalov uh, fairly comfortably because he can uh, he can find holes in his games. But Dimitrov would be a tougher opponent uh, from the and then he would have to face in the quarterfinals. Just like you said, someone Fognini, Chorich, or Berrettini in the quarterfinals. And once again, I don't see any of those players presenting a bigger challenge than Hurkacz. Uh, so, um, yes, Federer has challenging matches in front of him, but they're not uh, – I think it is a draw that he can, make, he can get through. You know, the North, I would call it an upset if Roger Federer is not in the semifinals next weekend here. I would have to call it an upset. Okay, there you go. And the coach has spoken. So let's talk about uh, Novak Djokovic going for uh, title number eight down under. Look very impressive in the Daniel Medvedev match. Went through, you know, that. I mean, I went through emotions watching that match. I thought Medvedev somewhat has figured Djokovic out in the taxing huge rallies. The match was intense. And Djokovic just found another gear and that match had, you know, so much of the backcourt tennis, you know, that's one way to kick off the year. Uh, so I'm, I don't know, I haven't looked at the odds and what the bookmakers are saying. I, I think Djokovic is a man to beat to win Australia for the eighth time. I don't know if you want to start uh, his section on that notion as well. Yes, uh, no, I agree with you. He's, 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 he, for me, he's the number one favorite to win the tournament, to Australian Open. But not only that, but I'm looking, but I'm looking at his section and I think I don't see him getting challenged until the quarterfinals. Uh, the, 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 the biggest challenge I think he'll face uh, on, the, on his way to the semifinals 
if he has to play Bautista Agut or Sitsipas in the quarterfinals. That would be a challenge, you know, because uh, because they're not going to they're not going to let's put it this way they're going to walk out on the court believing they have a chance to win against Djokovic or they have a chance to do well, uh, especially Tsitsipas on a given day could uh, could give Djokovic trouble because he has an all around game he has variety. Will Tsitsipas make it that far? I don't know. There's Milos Raonic there, and and I don't and I've stopped predicting anything about him whether he's coming back from an injury or whether he's in form. Uh, so you don't know. There are some loose cannons in there. There's Benoit Paire. But I don't see anybody really giving Djokovic any any type of serious challenge, except perhaps Tsitsipas on a very good day. I don't, uh, uh, you know, I just said it would be an upset if, if Federer doesn't make it to the semis. I think it would be a major upset. If Djokovic does not make it to the semis, it would be a shocker. Looking yeah, at his, yeah, looking going at by his going by his form at the ATP Cup, you know, he showed levels that uh, that are good enough to scare the field. But again, I think you brought Roberto Bautista Agut's name, and I was just doing some uh, fact check before you know uh, we started the recording. Uh, Bautista Agut and Djokovic are three three on outdoor uh, hard courts, and Bautista Agut has won the last three matches. Djokovic's last win goes, I think, in 2015 or 20. 14, if I'm correct. So that I think that's been a tough match. But again, all RBA's wins against Novak on hard have come on the best of three format. So best of five is a different animal. And Djokovic, we all know how tough he is uh, when the going gets tough. Uh, Sitsipas, on the other hand, too, has a 2-1 edge uh, mert. But again, uh, these are new waters for Sitsipas, lost in the last two majors in the first round. Uh, do you see him keeping the date to with Djokovic in the quarterfinals, or how do you see the Batista Agut Sitsipas match before uh, one of them takes on Novak? Well, I think uh, you know you, this is going to be a tricky question now because I would like to see how Sitsipas is playing. If you know if he gets all the way to the quarterfinal, if he gets all the way to that fourth round and uh, playing well, looking good, feeling good, then I would pick Sitsipas in that matchup. But if Sitsipas is on and off, plays one match well, one match okay, but kind of you know, uh, kind of uh, sputters through, and then and then you know has a match going, has a plays a match going five sets, uh, plays a match four sets that he should have won easily, and it doesn't come into that match with a lot of confidence, then I'm picking Bautista Agut to uh, to win that match. So uh, I I know that's kind of a cop out cop out answer. But uh, uh, if you ask me, you know, a day or two before, if they end up playing each other, if you ask me a day or two before, I'll have a much more precise answer for you. And I would say Sitsipas, uh, my answer would be Sitsipas, if he makes it that far playing well and feeling good. Okay, I'll uh, beg to differ on this note. I think we'll see a Djokovic, Batista Agut quarterfinals. I think uh, Batista Agut uh, has been playing solid tennis and. Uh, I think he'll build upon his major resume by making one more last state here. And uh, again, now since I've said that, Sitsipas will probably beat him in straight sets. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, no, you, you make a very good point, Sakib. Yes, Bautista Agut. Plus, Bautista Agut is the more experienced player by far. He's, he's a seasoned player. Again, you know, I put a lot of, uh, uh, I know I put a lot of stuff so, onto, so onto what is a seasoned it? investor. By what, player, but he is. What is in his game that matches up well with Novak while he struggles to keep that against Rafa? 
He, a lot of his play, a lot of his hits are flat and don't jump up. And Novak likes hitting hitting the ball on the rise, or um, you know, at at the as the ball jumps up above the waist level or above the chest level, Novak handles those handles those shots very well. And uh, on the other hand, Bautista Agut tends to hit flat balls, keeps the ball low. He has that weird sliding flat shot, kind of like you know Jimmy Connors used to hit those type of shots where. There's not, there's hardly any spin on the ball. It's not a slice either. It's this uh, kind of a fizzling flat ball. It's not, it's not the super, it's not a super hard ball either. But and he's able to do that from both sides, backhand and forehand. And he's, and you know, he's one of the rare guys who forces Novak to hit, uh, you know, shots below his hip level over and over again in a rally. And uh, and and. and that's probably why Novak has a bit of a hard time against him. But again, you know, we're talking about best of five here. I'm, uh, I, I would, I'm still going to count. I would still count it. I would still count it a shocker if Bautista Agut beats Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open. For me, yeah, that would be a shocker. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be extremely difficult because one thing is to win in Shanghai or Cincinnati, and then the other thing is to win three sets out of five. So if we get Federer and uh, Djokovic, you know, uh, Djokovic has dominated that rivalry at majors and definitely has had uh, uh, the edge in Australia. I think for his last three wins, dating back to 2011, is 9-1 to in sets. Federer only won the third set in the 2016 semis. If, again, very hypothetical, a lot of tennis to be played, 15 sets have to be won by both men. But if they were to square up, uh, uh, how, how much of an underdog Roger Federer is in this match? Yeah, again, it would be an upset. At this point, I would I would call Federer beating Djokovic at the Australian Open semifinals an upset. You know, I, I think Djokovic would go into that match uh, favorite. But at the same time, at the same time, it would not be nearly. Uh, I mean, it, it would be a mild upset. Of course, the, let me let me flip that uh, point around. If you ask me, give Djok- give me one player out of this whole half of the draw. That has that has the best chance of beating Djokovic. My answer will also be Roger Federer. So uh, uh, you know that. How, how you know, about how, how about if you make that question the entire tournament, not just bottom half? Is Federer, Medvedev, Nadal who has the best chance to challenge Djokovic? Yeah, I, I would say Federer and Medvedev both do. I don't think Nadal does. I don't, I don't think uh, uh, you know as great a player as Nadal is. Um, if they end up playing in the finals, um, um, I would I would. I would consider I would consider quite big upset if uh, Nadal was to beat uh, Djokovic in the finals of Australia. So uh, I'm going to go with um, if you if you go with the whole tournament, who are the two? I'm I'm going to put Federer and Medvedev at the same level in terms of challenging Djokovic. Okay, so let's wrap this up. We covered all the four sections uh, with the top four seeds. Uh, we both agree it's Novak Djokovic uh, looking like the man to repeat. Uh, time for a bold prediction. Who's in the final, Mert? Uh, I'm going to go with who's in the finals, like in the in the men's final or in the men's in final. The, because you and I don't know if you and Matt. Yes. Talk. Yes. No, I'm going. I'm, I'm going to go with if I have to pick a final. I'm going to go with Djokovic Nadal. Djokovic Nadal. Okay. Uh, I'm yeah. going to go Djokovic and Dominic team in the final. Okay. All right. That's that. That's actually quite possible. Well, well, well let me ask back to you, Sakib. If you, if I want to, if I ask you, give me your top six favorites for the tournament because 
let's not go any further than that. Uh, if you want, if you had to count five players or six players with a chance of winning the tournament, and you had to rank them in terms of their chance of winning tournament or group them, how would you how would you do it? I think uh, this is uh, not as uh, straightforward. But again, uh, we don't have uh, we can't go forever on this podcast. But uh, with all things being equal, uh, I always look at how a player matches up against a field. And before ATP Cup, I thought Novak is nursing some, you know, injury, some niggles. And I thought before ATP Cup that Nadal is the man to beat, but Nadal will struggle to beat Roger and Novak. But after watching ATP Cup, Novak is a clear favorite for me, unless there's some sort of a injury or, or a niggle or a health tip. Uh, so no- Novak is uh, number one. And again, uh, matchup-wise, uh, there are a few guys who can hang with him, but in best of five, hasn't happened on a hard court, especially deep in a tournament. And uh, number two... Uh, would be, you know, I, I like if Federer was in the other half for Federer's chances, but, you know, with Djokovic, I think he's had his trouble. So at best, Federer can go here is semis. Uh, okay, it wouldn't be a big upset, uh, you know, if we see uh, Federer in the final, but it'll still be an upset. So Djokovic is one, and then uh, on the other half, I would say Dominic team, if he can go unscattered in the first week, I think, and with Nadal's mileage, uh, yeah, I would say Dominic Team, uh, Daniel Medvedev, Roger Federer are just behind Novak Djokovic, and of course Rafa Nadal is there. He can, uh, he's won the two of the last three U.S. Opens, but uh, he looks like has played too much tennis. He would, uh, he would need his work cut out. So those are the five men uh, in no particular order after Novak, uh, where I rank uh, my top five. And uh, Sitsipas and Zverev to me have somewhat question marks, even though Sitsipas won the year-end championship in London. Uh, I just don't see him getting past uh, uh, Novak in, uh, in, in, in that quarterfinal. So that's why Sitsipas is number six. But if he was in the other half, things can change. But this is what the draw is. I know it's kind of a confusing answer. Novak is one. And then uh, uh, team Medvedev and Federer and Nadal are uh, somewhat in the same boat. Yep. No, no, no. That's a, that, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put Novak by himself at the top as a favorite to, to win the tournament. You know, sometimes in the past I've said one of the big three or, or I'm, no, I'm putting Novak clearly by himself at the top as a favorite to win the tournament. And then I've got Federer, Nadal and Medvedev as the next group altogether in terms of chances of winning. Uh, I'm, I'm going to put them at, at the same level. In other words, I've got Novak at the top, three players right after him in my ranking at the same level. And then right below those three players, I'm putting Dominic Team, And frankly, after that, I have no one else. And I think one of those five players will win. You know, Dominic Team has an outside chance, uh, quite far outside chance. Uh, it, it'll be one of, the, one of the four players. In fact, I, I will maybe even one of the big three winning again. So maybe I'm making a mistake putting Medvedev at the same level as, uh, as uh, Federer and Nadal. I'm open to the suggestion that he should be maybe just a little bit below them, but that's 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 where I'm going. I'm putting Novak at the top, Federer, Nadal, and Medvedev in the next group, and then team right below those three. So, Bert, thank you very much. On uh, Thursday night, I know you had to rush from uh, your lecture at uh, the university, and you jumped right in the podcast as a pro, as always. And uh, those who listen to the podcast, you know, uh, join the thread on Twitter, see how off me and Mert are in our picks. But we are going with Djokovic. Mert is Djokovic over Nadal, and I'm going with Djokovic over Dominic Team. And uh, let's see how this tournament shapes up. 
hopefully the air quality index improves like Mert and Matt were talking about and things settle down in Australia for both the players and the fans. And once again, thanks for listening. Uh, to anyone who joins it to listen to these podcasts, these are produced by our friends at Red Circle. Uh, we'll be back with another episode. Until then, it's bye from Matt, Sakib, and Bert. Follow your favorite player's likelihood of winning their next match all the way through from pre-match to the last point with live in-play match probabilities for every ATP, WTA, and Grand Slam tournament on statsinsider.com.au. Head to www.statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all of Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free.